previously on Lost. We're going to talk about bad journalists. Okay. And bad things that have happened to good journalists. Oh, neutral and, journalists are right out. Yeah. Hearst controlled so much of the media that he could actually change policy. You never were a fan of the method, Kevin. Can I get missing white woman syndrome? Nanny cams all over your apartment. Like, it's like they walk in to kill you and like, this guy really likes caustic soda. Going from overseas to more domestic, I've got a uh, particularly shrieky harpy I'd like to talk about. Shrieky harpy. Mm -hmm. Nancy Grace. Nancy Grace. She is a piece of work. I've always disliked her show. What's the name of her show? Nancy Grace. Nancy Grace. (laughs) Can I drop a bomb here? She's a Uh, cunt. Okay. That's, I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to get the C word out. I was hoping you were going to say something along those lines as opposed to farting in this small room when you said drop a bomb. Nancy Grace is a former prosecutor, an author, and has a show on uh, HLN. Journalist or no? Ooh, that's questionable. I don't consider her a journalist. She was a lawyer who became a journalist through Court TV. Yeah. She got hired by Court TV and then turned into a sort of a daily talk show where she just talks about court cases of the day and sensationalizes them. And then she's got a really big thing about she sort of accuses people of guilt or innocence <laughs> before all the facts are necessarily in. Oh, or, okay. or any facts. Yeah, and that's kind of what I want to talk before about. Before there were our facts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as a prosecutor, Nancy Grace twice came under scrutiny for misconduct. In 1997, the court overturned the murder arson conviction of businessman W.W. Carr in the death of his wife. The court concluded the conduct. Oh, what, what accent should I do for the court? Oh, uh, British, of course. Uh, The conduct of the prosecuting attorney in this case demonstrated a disregard of the notions of due process and fairness, and it was inexcusable. Carr was freed in 2004 when the Georgia Supreme Court ruled unanimously that Fulton County awaited too long to retry him, thereby prejudicing his right to a fair trial. A panel of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals wrote in 2005 opinion that Grace played fast and loose with her ethical duties and failed to fulfill her responsibilities as a prosecutor in the 1990 triple murder trial of Herbert Connell Stevens. The court agreed that it was difficult to conclude that Grace did not knowingly use apparently false testimony from a detective that there were no other suspects despite the existence of outstanding arrest warrants for other men. So... Not, doesn't sound like she was a terribly good prosecutor as well. Where does a bad lawyer go? <laughs> Television! <laughs> uh, like Stephen pointed out, she started on Court TV, uh, right, commenting okay. on uh, some of the shows they had there, and she eventually got her own show out of it. Um, and uh, in, the, sort of in that ensuing time, she wrote a book called Objection! Exclamation! Mm-hmm. Uh, in which she talks about- Sounds like a good musical to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Oklahoma, right? The chorus that? line all having her horrible hair. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all the girls with the same Nancy Grace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that makes my boner go away. <laughs> anyway, she wrote this book, uh, and in, in it she details her fiancé that she had in university was murdered while they were st- they were together. She talks about that it was a motivating factor for her going into the legal profession and that it motivated her to like search for justice at every turn. And in March of 2006, the New York Observer wrote an article suggesting that Grace had embellished the story of her fiance's 1979 murder uh, to better support her image. 
Grace described the tragedy as the impetus for her career and often publicly referred to the incident. The Observer researched the murder and found apparent contradictions between the events and Grace's subsequent statements, including the following. Her fiancé, Keith Griffin, was, was not shot at random by a stranger, as she claims, but by a former co-worker, Tommy McCoy. Uh, McCoy did not have a prior criminal record, and rather than denying the crime, as she points out, she con- he confessed on the night of the murder. The jury deliberated only for a few hours, not for days and days. Uh, there was no ongoing string of appeals, as McCoy's family did not want any, as she's claimed. So some pretty substantial factual errors. And she yeah, the- still does that. She still claims all those things, even though it's been pointed as false. Well, when does the- that really affect anyone, though? No, but when when the observer it just get, it's a it's it a, speaks to her honesty. It speaks to her credibility right. exactly. When uh, the observer talked to her, she uh, she claimed that she had not looked into the case in many years and tried not to think about it. And she said, <laughs> tried only to think about. So she wrote a book. <laughs> yeah, she wrote a book about it, but didn't bother well, looking. And yeah. I, I I can't be bothered to go look at the facts of of my past life when I write about it. I'm just going to write about what I feel. It's too horrible to think about what actually happened. I'm calling it right now. This this was the impetus for her shitty lie-filled career. She is the evil Batman. Her <laughs> her feet. Well, because well, from the parrot from the other universe. I guess so. Except that she's incompetent too, because Batman's parents were murdered, and that gave him the impetus to become this crime fighter. Oh, I see. Her fiance was murdered, and that gave her the impetus to become to this lie-filled lives. justice seeker. Yeah, and it's, it's life, and she's a lie-filled justice seeker. I'm calling it. Yeah. Yeah. Keith Olbermann made a statement in March 2007 in Rolling Stone magazine where he points out that anybody who would embellish the story of their own fiance's murder should spend an hour a day not on television, but in a psychiatrist's chair. Nancy Grace responded in a statement saying, I did not put myself through law school and fight all these years for victims of crime to waste one minute of my time, energy, and my education in a war words with Keith Olbermann, whom I've never met nor had any disagreement. I feel we have X amount of time on earth and that when we give in to our detractors or spend needless time on silly fights, I think that's abusing the chance we have to do something good. So I don't care if you're right. I don't have time to listen to you. <laughs> or to issue a statement saying I don't have time to issue statements. <laughs> uh, there, so here are the big cases uh, in her career as a broadcaster. And there's so many. Oh, I want to say one thing about that book. In uh, in that book, she called defense lawyers pigs and compared them to Nazi concentration camp guards. No one deserves a defense. Yeah, yeah everyone no one, everyone is guilty. She would really do good in Putin's Russia. Yeah, well, you, once once we hear more about these specific cases, I mean, her mantra is she. There's a presumption of guilt. Like she presumes everybody guilty. There are, and then she gives some quirky names. Like yeah, surely somebody has sued her and she's needed a defense lawyer. Oh. She's been sued. Oh, yeah. She's been sued. She's been sued How, lots who, of times. Who would take that job after being called a pig <laughs> and being compared to a Nazi concentration well, camp guard? A, a money-grubbing pig would take that job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Elizabeth Smart kidnapping. Uh, we may have made mention of during a kidnapping episode, but it might have been cut. During that case, when suspect Richard Ricci was arrested by police on the basis that he had a criminal record and had worked at the Smart's home, Grace immediately and repeatedly proclaimed on court TV and on Larry King that Ricci was guilty, although there was little evidence to support this claim. She also suggested publicly that Ricci's girlfriend was involved in the cover-up of the crime, and Grace continued to accuse Ricci, even though he died while in custody. 
It was later revealed that Smart was kidnapped by Brian David Mitchell and Wanda Barzi, two individuals with whom Richard Ricci had never had any connection. When Court TV confronted Grace seven months later to ask whether she was incorrect in her assertion that Ricci was guilty and whether or not she felt bad about it in any way, she stated that Ricci was a known ex-con, a known felon, and brought suspicious on himself. So who could blame anyone for claiming he was the perpetrator? See, and this is what she does. She can destroy an innocent person's life and credibility. And she does it every day. I, I love if you're fact, a white girl. So who blames anyone for claiming he was the perpetrator? Well, how about not claiming he's the perpetrator? How about that? How about keeping that chambered? How about just like throw out, you know, sort of find out the facts and put them on the table and say, you know. Person of interest. Yeah, exactly. Like how about just not claiming that they're a perpetrator? Isn't purpose to, isn't person of interest just also mean guilty son of a bitch? Well, that's what it's like become. It's, it's become that. I like, I like too that she stated that as an ex-con and known felon, he brought suspicious suspicion on himself. By what? Just walking down the street? Like how did he brought suspicion on himself because he did handyman work at the house where a girl eventually got kidnapped? Like exactly how did he bring suspicion on himself? Once you've been accused of a, and convicted of a crime, that means that you have done all the crimes. Oh, exactly. Man. That's what she's saying. And he had to work as a handyman because he was a convicted felon and couldn't get a job anywhere else. Right. Yeah. During the, uh, the Duke lacrosse team controversy... Ooh, look, a lacrosse story. Mm-hmm. And a gang it. rape story. Oh, Ooh, are we not yeah. going to save this for our lacrosse episode? <laughs> uh, this is when it's, uh, a young lady came forward and accused the lacrosse team of Duke University of gang raping. So Nancy Grace accused, wrongly accused the 2006 Duke lacrosse team of rape uh, when the victim came forward. And Nancy Grace said, I'm so glad they didn't miss a lacrosse game over a little thing like gang rape. And regarding the accuser, when questions started to arise regarding her own statements, Nancy Grace responded by saying, why would you go to a cop in an alleged gang rape case and lie and give misleading information? And the day after Nancy Grace made that statement, the charges were dropped and the victim was proved to be lying. Nancy Grace has never made a retraction. And she She doesn't have time for that. There's more justice to be done. But she continues to bring that up today, to this day. Also, she'll mention that. She'll talk about the Duke lacrosse case. Yeah. As a rape case. As a rape case. Even though the charges were never filed. It's been totally discredited. Been totally debunked. Prosecutor has no interest in chasing any of these people. And yet she still refers to it as a rape case. Yep. There's a young lady named Melinda Duckett whose child went missing. There once was a lady named Duckett. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to have the worst ending to to a limerick ever. Nancy Grace interviewed her less than two weeks after her son went missing questioned her for her alleged lack of openness regarding the disappearance and asked Duckett, where were you? Why aren't you telling us where you were that day? Duckett appeared confused on the show and was unable to answer whether or not she'd taken a polygraph test. When Grace asked her why she wouldn't account for specific details, Duckett replied, because I was told not to. To which Grace responded, Miss Duckett, you are not telling us for a reason. What's the reason? You you refuse to give us even the simplest facts before your son went missing. It is day 12. The next day before the airing of the show, Duckett shot herself and died. A death that relatives claim was influenced by media scrutiny, particularly from Nancy Grace. Duckett's grandfather, Bill Eubank, said, Nancy Grace and the others, they just bashed her to the end. So let me guess, Nancy Grace decided that justice had been served. Uh, In an interview with Good Morning America, Nancy Grace said in a reaction to the events that, if anything, I would suggest that guilt made her commit suicide. To suggest that a 15 or 20 minute interview can cause someone to commit suicide is focusing on the wrong thing. 
if you ever watched her show, I hope you haven't. She constantly puts up these Chiron bugs, the graphics, with these names like Tot Mom. Yeah, she gives, people, she gives people Over nicknames. and over, guilty, guilty, guilty. And she just, for hours, this goes and goes and goes. Yes, there is an assumption that a parent of a missing child or a dead child could be the killer. Happens it's, more than not. It's often. called a suspect. Yeah, they're yeah. a suspect. This woman was never tried, but Nancy Grace tried her on the air. Right, yeah, In yeah, front yeah. of the entire country. Exactly. Melinda Duckett's family sued Nancy Grace. And on November 8th, 2010, Grace reached an out-of-court settlement and created a $200,000 trust fund dedicated to locating the child. Uh, the settlement was reached a month before a jury trial was scheduled to start. If the young boy is found alive before he turns 13, the proceeds of the trust will be administered by a trustee until he turns 18, and then the funds will be transferred for him to for his use. If Trenton is not found by his 13th birthday or he's found but is not alive, the funds will immediately be transferred to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So uh, the family doing a little good, forcing Nancy Grace to do a little good. In July 2012, Tony Annette Madrano committed suicide by setting herself on fire after being condemned on the air by Grace. That is, you know, one time, okay, two times, let's start looking at Nancy. A mother who was nicknamed Vodka Mom by Nancy Grace after she passed out drunk and rolled over onto her three-day-old son and suffocated him, Tony Madrano burned herself to death Uh, after weeks of condemnation. She was 29 years old and she became the subject of hate after Nancy Grace decried the mother's carelessness on her cable show. She died of injuries after using a flammable liquid to set herself on fire in the backyard of her St. Paul Park, Minnesota home. That sounds like a real statement. You're making a statement when you light yourself on fire. Yeah, she's making a statement saying, I'm doing this because this bitch made me do it. Not because I feel I'm guilty. I'm sad for what I did, but I can't live well, with this anymore. No, I mean, it, it, she's, she inadvertently smothered her three-day-old son. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of guilt to go around. Yeah. But it didn't need to be aired on national television. Right. Or he thinks that she's not being punished enough. Like she wanted to roll over and kill her kids. Well, like, and, and charges were brought up about uh, involuntary manslaughter charges were in the works. So it might have been a contributing factor that she was looking possibly at a jail sentence right the rumors were around that was they weren't going to try her because they had charged her well they they weren't going to they were going to charge her but they were going to drop the charges or maybe lessen them so she'd have to go to treatment for her alcoholism Mm -hmm. right because they didn't they didn't look at this woman and see her as a career criminal correct but nancy grace's continuing reporting got the public up into a lather demanding the homicide sentence or manslaughter sentence uh, for something that was created because of a disease which alcoholism is I've only ever watched about like six minutes of Nancy Grace's show, but uh, I I coined the term shrieking harpy from minute one because she literally yells the whole show. She just screams, right? And it's like, it's kind of like, I am louder than everybody, so I am writer. Like that's almost what her philosophy is, right? And so I certainly don't recommend that anybody watch her show. And uh, Well, she is on the Shriek Network. (laughs) I do recommend one video. Go to YouTube and go Nancy Grace owned. Okay. Uh, Yes. She was talking about Paris Hilton. And her crew in the control room started playing sexy pictures of Paris, which she took personally right. and said, get it off. And then eventually they switched to animals fucking oh, nice. on the air while the crew in the so control you think room were this laughing. Is, this is a uh, sign of the fact that her crew doesn't even really like her that much. No, and her producer, nobody likes her. They like their job. Right. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, an hour a day. It's kind of a cush job, right? It's more than an hour a day. If you yeah. work for Nancy Grace as a producer, you're working with her seven, eight hours a day. I don't know how they do it. Uh, I would set myself on fire in the backyard. <laughs> so 
Yeah, so we'll obviously we'll find that video and put it on the website, CosticSodaPodcast.com, and you can all go there and check it out. Daniel Pearl was kidnapped while working as the South Asia Bureau Chief of the Wall Street Journal, based out of Mumbai, India. He'd gone to Pakistan as part of an investigation into the alleged links between Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, and Al-Qaeda. On January 23, 2002, on his way to what he thought was an interview in downtown Karachi, Pearl was kidnapped by a group calling itself the National Movement for the Restoration of Pakistani Sovereignty. That does not roll off the tongue. Wait, isn't Pakistan sovereign? Wait, they're a country? <laughs> I guess not sovereign in the way that they would like. Okay. Better uh, sovereign. The group claimed that Pearl was a spy and using a Hotmail address. Microsoft. <laughs> sent the United States a range of demands, including the freeing of all Pakistani terror detainees, the release of a halted U.S. shipment of F-16 fighter jets to Pakistan. One billion trillion dollars. <laughs> what do you think the name of the Hotmail account was? Like, what was it at Hotmail? Oh, good Hot question. terrorist for you at Hotmail.com? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, or, or Pakistan 4 with the numeral forever. Oh, uh-huh. Darth Justice 69. No, that's your Hotmail account. Nine days later, Pearl was beheaded. On May 16th, the severed head and decomposed body were found cut into 10 pieces and buried about 30 miles north of Karachi. No autopsy was performed because there was a video of the killing, which made obvious the sequence of events that led up to his death. So was this before or after they got their fighter jets? I'm not 100% sure the fighter jets ever made their way to Pakistan. Uh, on February 21st, 2002, a videotape was released titled The Slaughter of the Spy Journalist, the Jew Daniel Pearl. The video shows Pearl uh, get his throat slit and then beheaded with a sword. Uh, and then they proceeded to mutilate his body, cutting it up into 10 parts, which lasts three minutes and 36 seconds. I, uh, I thought that was really fast. To cut somebody up into 10 pieces. I thought these guys knew what they were doing. Well, they had the judicious use of star wipes during the editing. Oh, because oh, I, I never looked at the video myself. So you've seen it and there's a lot of transitions. There's a lot of time cuts. It's like a Ken Burns documentary. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, seen the, I've seen the video. It, it's dangerous. I'm Jewish. And I know what it's like being part of that world. Yeah. Being a Jewish journalist. You're, you're targeted immediately. It's obviously a total tragedy because... He had absolutely nothing to do with with U.S. foreign policy in Pakistan. He was a journalist. Did they target him because he was a journalist or just because he was He was convenient. A, a guy. He, was, he was Western, he was Jewish, and he was a journalist. He right. was a perfect target. Okay. Right, because they knew that they would get lots of press if they snatched him. Even if he was doing stories that would have helped the Pakistanis. Right. It wouldn't matter. He was Jewish, he was Western, he was a journalist. He was the right target. He's, he fit the demographic they were looking for. Three suspects were caught after the IP address of those who sent the ransom email was traced by the Karachi police. The mastermind of the kidnapping, Ahmed Omar Saeed Sheikh, who had been in an Indian prison in connection with the 1994 kidnappings of Western tourists in India, had been freed by the Indian government in exchange for passengers aboard hijacked Indian Airlines Flight 814 in 1999. Now, when they sent that ransom via email... Mm -hmm. Did they use that font where it looks like you cut out letters, different letters from oh, magazines? Ransom? Oh, Probably that... Comic Sans. Oh, oh yeah. that's too bad. <laughs> the most evil of all bad the fonts. Yeah, that or Papyrus. Papyrus. So it, it, there was a movie made of it. Uh, Angelina Jolie played Daniel Pearl's wife, What's and right? she also executive produced it. A Mighty Heart. Yeah. It wasn't too long ago, and uh, you know, it got a lot of international attention, but this is one of those utterly senseless 
violent acts against a journalist that you know certainly didn't deserve the ending that he got right and how long did they wait nine days seems like a short amount of time if anything good came out of this i mean it's a horrible tragedy would be that it it raised awareness of the dangers for journalists abroad well i mean does anybody actually think that these guys were ever gonna let him go without cutting his head off nope yeah like they 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 were gonna kill him from the minute they they snatched him they're not gonna let him go yeah they're not letting him go if you get kidnapped and they put a ransom in that part of the world well, Just, especially when the ransom is, uh, we want every Pakistani terror detainee in Guantanamo released, and we want a U.S. shipment of F-16 fighters sent to Pakistan, and then nine days later, when it's not complied with, they cut off your head. They were probably planning on cutting it off anyway. Whether or not they get the fighter jets. I mean, yeah. like, even FedEx can't get F-16 fighter jets to Pakistan in less than nine days. Well, they have to put in those giant boxes. <laughs> What do you think that they were trying to do? Was this just a, a rage like Western uh, Jewish and get him and we'll kill him? Or did they think they might actually gain something out of this? I doubt they thought they were going to gain anything. It's I an thought this was just an act of terror to yeah. show that we can grab a journalist, a Western journalist from a big paper like the Wall Street Journal, kill him on video mm-hmm. without being touched. Right. right. You know, to make it more fearful for us to go there and do any work because we're afraid we're going to be the next Daniel Pearl. Right. It's... Terror is the idea of terror is the idea. Right. Right. They're never gonna get their prisoners released from Guantanamo Bay. Come Here's on. what I don't understand. If you think you're right, if you think your cause is just and you think that what you're doing is good, why are you afraid of people who want to come and just tell the truth? Why do you not want the truth because to come what out? What is truth? Right. I I mean, I guess are they worried that you're not telling the truth? They think that the journalists are going to lie about them? To them, he represented not just the United States because he was Jewish, Israel, and for that, was supporting Israel and their policy. Okay. So, the, so he was subverting the news right. as propaganda. I see. So he was a spy by proxy okay. is what they thought he was. Or what they claimed they thought he was, yeah. whether they cared or not. They so, think everybody's a spy by proxy, by the way. <laughs> so rather than disprove the claims of the Jewish media that they're all savages who butcher innocent journalists... And, you know, actually maybe gain something. Go, hey, we found this guy drunk uh, outside a pub and we could have cut his head off, but here you go. Even though he's Jewish, take him back. And then people will go, oh, hey, they're, they're not that bad. Yeah, and here's <laughs> what we'd right. like to see happen. Yeah, that would be I mean, wouldn't that be good? Do. Yeah, except they don't. But no, instead they're like, uh, give us lots of impossible things or we're cutting his head off. All right, get the blade sharp. I am interested with the spy by proxy thing because does that mean I'm a spy by proxy? Yes. Yes. After this episode, yes. yeah. Remember the uh, right. remember the tourists and the hikers in Iran who were yeah. taken. They were spies by proxy. Well, yeah, but those guys walked across a pretty sketchy border. Like, I mean, that's a uh, doing something stupid and getting getting your hand caught in the cookie jar. And it is easy to actually become a spy by proxy. I mean, you hang out at embassy parties because you want to get information, but you got to be careful that some of the embassy isn't feeding you information. To then print that will destabilize something or change mm. something. The CIA is now, good at that. Do spy by proxies get licenses to kill? No. Because there's you a get guy proxy in my building. License to kill. You there's a, a guy in my building who's driving me crazy, and I would love to have a license. You get a license to the open bar at the embassy. Now, boo. The, your weakness as a spy by proxy is you're still hanging out in Canada. That's a weakness. I don't. Know, I'm pretty. I'm pretty cushy in here. I don't, no, that's, no why, of- that's why you don't have the jet car. Uh, well, just wait until the Harper regime changes how they handle journalists. 
There'll be some beheadings going on soon enough when uh, we keep up with this global warming thing. I think he's emailing Putin yeah. for poisons. Hey, how do you keep people quiet? We've been trying to silence our scientists here. Should we start poisoning them or just shooting them in elevators? <laughs> all we've done so far is fire them all. <laughs> yeah, But they keep talking. And defunding them. So I want to talk about Janet Cook, another American journalist. Maybe not nearly so honorable as Daniel Pearl. Uh, she became infamous when it was discovered that her Pulitzer Prize winning story that she'd win- written for the Washington Post had been entirely fabricated. When did this happen? 1980. In an article entitled Jimmy's World, which appeared in the Post on September 28, 1980, Cook wrote a gripping profile of the life of an eight-year-old heroin addict. Okay. Uh, she described the needle marks freckling the baby smooth skin of his thin brown arms. Mm-hmm. The story engendered sympathy amongst readers, including Marion Barry, the mayor of then Washington, D.C., he and other city officials organized an all-out police search for the boy, which was unsuccessful and led to claims that the story was fraudulent. Barry, responding to public pressure, lied and claimed that Jimmy was known to the city and received treatment Wow! and was announced dead shortly after. Wow. So if, this is a total emperor uh, has no clothes kind of moment, right? Where they go to Miriam Barry and like, I think this story's fake. He's like, no, 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 we got him in custody. He already knows journalists are involved. <laughs> You think you can't check that? (laughs) Cook had even falsely claimed that she had a degree from Vassar College and a master's degree from the University of Toledo and had received a journalism award while at the Toledo Blade. While Cook had attended Vassar for one year, she had only received a bachelor's degree from Toledo. After she won the Pulitzer, the editors of the Toledo Blade, where Cook had previously worked, read her biographical notes and noticed a number of discrepancies. So the Pulitzer kind of brought her to the attention of her former co-workers. She's, she's got a fraudulent credentials. Uh-huh. Further investigation revealed that Cook's academic credentials were totally inflated and pressured by the editors of the Post, Cook confessed her guilt and the fake story. Two days after the prize was awarded, Post publisher Donald E. Graham held a press conference and admitted that the story was fraudulent. Assistant managing editor Bob Woodward of Deep Throat fame said at the time, it is a brilliant story, fake and fraud that it is. It would be absurd for me or any other editor to review the authenticity or accuracy of stories that are nominated for prizes, which seems to me wrong thinking. I'm sorry, an eight-year-old heroin addict would set my alarm off. Yeah, as you a think if you were the editor, you would have uh, sniffed out this long before oh, it ever hit the page. I have a good nose for that shit, and I would have gone, "Are you fucking kidding me?" I want to see pictures, uh-huh. video. I want you know collaborating neighbors telling me about this eight-year-old heroin addict. Even after she was caught, even after she was caught, admitted that she'd never interviewed this boy, that she'd never met anybody that fit this, that description, she still uh, kind of played it off by saying that she'd met people who told her about boys just like this. I've heard about Sasquatch too, but I'm not going to claim it's real. (laughs) Well, we did our episode on dogs and talked about them hooking dogs on heroin. Oh, that's true. That's true. So, I mean, maybe. Certainly in 1980, that would have been a pretty mind-blowing revelation that an eight-year-old would be hooked on heroin. You would have to have, like, parents of the year. They grow up so fast. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Cats in the cradle with the silver spoon, putting heroin and cooking it up. <laughs> Did you pick that song just because it had cradle in it? Silver no spoon. spoon. <laughs> oh, there you go. I have a uh, report about a White House reporter named Jeff Gannon. This is good. Which was a uh, pseudonym. His real name was James Guckert. So I know why he changed it. Oh, I thought it was going to be Gan Jeffen. <laughs> Ganges. 
Gannon first attended a White House press conference on February 28th, 2003, and asked a question of then White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer. At this time, Gannon had never had an article published anywhere and was not associated with any news organization. However, Gannon stated that he was editor of his high school paper as proof of having journalistic experience. Sure. Plus, uh, he has a hat with a little press card in the <laughs> so brim. It must have had some sweet, sweet, like smooth talking uh, abilities to worm his way into the White House press room. White House Press Secretary Scott McClellan later said there was no breakdown in security and no one intervened on Gannon's behalf to ensure his access, despite the fact that he'd been able to get a press pass for the White House using an assumed name. Gannon's response was that the alias Jeff Gannon was a professional name used for convenience, saying that his real last name is hard to spell and pronounce, and that the Secret Service was aware of his true identity. Uh, journalists have said that it can take weeks to get the kind of clearance Gannon received in a single day. He was issued one-day press passes for nearly two years. It took me seven months to get cleared for a White House press pass. <laughs> he got one day. And they day. talked like school teachers and neighbors. <laughs> yeah. You know, they talked about my my bad bill paying. But to his Is credit, there... I, would, I would like to have more random people go into the <laughs> White House room and ask questions that other people normally wouldn't ask. <laughs> they should open it up once every once in a while yeah. to maybe high school journalists. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess Gannon was the, uh, the test model and didn't quite work out well enough. He was issued a one-day pass for nearly two years, avoiding the extensive background checks required for permanent passes and sidestepping his utter inability to gain the necessary congressional pass. If he would have asked for a permanent or a long-term pass, not the one-day pass, he never would have gotten in. Yeah, of course. Right? Of course. He knew the game. He knew exactly how to bypass the security. Well, there is a theory that he was a Trojan horse for the Bush administration. Because oh, there were a bunch of tiny soldiers inside of him? He, yes. Well, <laughs> in more ways than one, and we're about to get to that. Okay. <laughs> I'm full of tinier men. Yeah, there, there was a, uh, a theory that he was a Trojan horse because he used to ask, like, he got famous for asking super softball questions of President Bush. His attention was really focused on him on January 26, 2005, when at the press conference, he asked the following question. Senate Democratic leaders have painted a very bleak picture of the economy. Minority leader Harry Reid was talking about soup lines and Senator Hillary Clinton was talking about the economy being on the verge of collapse. Yet in the same breath, they say that social security is rock solid and there's no crisis there. How are you going to be able to work with people who seem to have divorced themselves from reality? Mm-hmm. So, wow, is that a leading question? <laughs> in fact, it was such a leading question that it was ridiculed on The Daily Show. Jon Stewart sarcastically dubbed him Chip Wright Wingenstein of the Bush Agenda Gazette. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the word, you know, if they poll people in the States, the most trusted source for news right now is Jon Stewart. And that yeah. says something about the state of journalism. Yeah, because yeah. they're lampooning everything right yeah. nobody escapes their... you know things have gone to shit when the court jester is the most trusted name <laughs> <laughs> yeah john stewart would be the first one to tell you that I, he's he absolutely would. although he has personally taken down like two other pseudo news shows the so. fifth estate is a rundown crack house in detroit right now. <laughs> yeah. i like that the question contained a factually inaccurate assertion as well. The supposed comments about soup lines had not actually been made by Reed, but had been satirically attributed to him by conservative commentator Rush Limbaugh. So he even got the quote wrong. After the press conference, scrutiny into his personal and professional background by other news organizations and bloggers began. And on February Who is 8th, this young whippersnapper? Exactly. On February 8th, 2005, Gannon resigned from the Talon News and shut down his website, jeffgannon.com. 
because it turned out he had been a male escort up until quite recently. Well, that happened too. with that. Uh, Howard Kurtz of the Washington Post said, Jeff Gannon, whose naked pictures have appeared on a number of gay escort sites, oh. says that he has regrets about his past, that, but, what, but that White House officials knew nothing about his salacious activities. Gannon is alleged to have registered several internet domain names, including hotmilitarystud.com, militaryescorts4m.com. Oh, that's a good one. And posted naked pictures of himself on several other sites. According to The Independent, Bloggers revealed that Jeff Gannon had previously worked as a $200 an hour gay prostitute who advertised himself on a series of websites with names such as Hot Military Stud. So this is this conservative blogger who was lobbing softballs at President Bush. Yeah, while lobbing his own softballs at somebody else. (laughs) Or possibly Bush. So uh, yeah, what do you think, uh, Stephen, what do you think about this theory that maybe he was a plant by the... uh, they, by the Bush administration in order to... I don't think he was a direct plant, but I think he was probably pushed in and given credo to from somebody else in the conservative blogging or newsing, yeah. news agencies. They kind of, somebody they kind of got, him into, behalf. They, got him into the back door, yeah. shall we say? They mm-hmm. Donnie brasco and they're like, oh, they, yeah. he, uh, I vouched for him, and then they had to go Let's down. Let's fill the seats down. with more people who give our voice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it just, he was so, he wasn't an actual journalist, so he was so bad at it that he actually got caught. I don't think the White House actually went out and, G- and said, petitioned him. And petitioned Let, him. Let's find a gay escort who can <laughs> lob softballs at us. Yeah, I don't because think. Because really, if the White House knew he was, he was a gay escort, they would have nicked that in the butt. Yeah. Well, as soon as that got out, they, the, the problem is they probably called a gay escort, asked for somebody to come over and lob softballs, and he ended up in the press room. They could have got somebody off the hill because yeah, he, he misunderstood the message. Because his, his conservative blog was just getting going. So right. he thought that, ooh, I got a fan. Right. All, all those uh, anti-gay Republicans need some companionship. And that's what he was there for. Just use Grinder app at the Republican National Convention. The oh. gay lo- geolocation app, Grinder yeah. at the Republican National Convention. And it goes off like crazy. <laughs> Is that true? It's definitely true. Are you are you exhibiting bad journalism right now? No, by I'm just not. Surmising? Uh, a gentleman who is a sex writer from Seattle. Okay. We think we all know who he is. Yeah. He has, mm. has a podcast of his own. Yeah. He was down there doing it. And at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee Conference, was running the Grinder app. That entire Family First Brigade all kind of like, you know, they've all been outed. A bunch of them have anyway. Well, yeah, Family First, Gay Sex Second. Uh-huh. It's just priorities. Yeah. There's a journalist named Johan Hari, who is accused of multiple examples of plagiarism and unattributed quotations in several interviews. He had to give back his Orwell Prize, which he won in 2008, followed a comparison between one of the articles for which he won the award and the original Der Spiegel article on which it was based. Is the Orwell Prize a giant face of George Orwell? Oh, I wish. I hope so. God, I have no idea. Obey. Obey. It definitely <laughs> sounds like something you could like bludgeon someone to death with, right? In very Big Brother fashion. So for this reason, he was, you know, under, uh, he'd lost his job and, you know, he had been uh, disgraced. But in July 2011, New Statesman legal correspondent David Allen Green wrote on his personal blog that in January 2005, a Wikipedia user had discovered that David Rose using the sock puppet account David R. from Meth Productions, shared an IP address with the independent newspaper. On the same day, Nick Cohen in The Spectator wrote that he'd been attacked on Wikipedia by David Rose following dispute with Johan Hari, as had Telegraph columnist Christina O'Done and Oliver Cam, the Times lead writer. 
Cohen also wrote that Hari's own Wikipedia entry had been edited by Rose to make him seem one of the most essential writers of our times. In September 2011, David Rose was shown to be Johan Hari. What is a sock puppet account? You make a fake account that is, a, quote, another person that you then control as though oh, it's a sock right. puppet. Okay. So it looks like it's not just you saying that, no, I'm innocent and I'm a good person. These other people going, yeah, I agree with him. It wasn't so bad what he did and his writing is excellent. Like Even though Amazon, nobody's ever met them. It's like Amazon book or CD reviews. Right, exactly. Yeah. So not only was this guy a terrible plagiarist and got caught pretty quickly. He was also terrible at monkeying with people on Wikipedia because he would get into uh, an argument on the phone or dispute in writing. And then one day later, their Wikipedia page would get altered to make them uh, look in a negative light. (laughs) And then he monkeyed his own Wikipedia page to make himself seem like, and I quote, and his Head was made of solid gold. <laughs> One of the most essential writers of our times. I love this guy. We use we use Wikipedia, especially when they're coming down at a primary mm-hmm. or a convention of who's going to be nominated for a vice president. Immediately, you can look at all the contenders on Wikipedia, and you look at the edit history. Right. And you see whose Wikipedia has been edited recently, right. like the past week. Yeah. The most... Chances are that's the person that's going to get them. I think that's right. how they knew Paul Ryan was going to be Romney's running mate. Exactly. Because they were noticing that Paul Ryan's Wikipedia page was getting whitewashed, basically. Yep. Right. Right, right. That all the bad stuff was being edited out. Right. And he was being pumped up to and be And it's all done better. by the same people. If you look at them, it's the same editors. And they all go back to like a lot of these conservative think tanks and political action committees and friends of people who go in and whitewash and sanitize wikipedia right right that's why a good journalist never trusts wikipedia well the thing about i mean here's the problem i mean i have i have a, an experience with journalism on the opposite side of the coin because i used to work in politics before i started working in film and television and uh one of my jobs was to write press releases and whenever the minister that i worked for had something that she wanted to say we very carefully crafted the press release because if it got printed it would pretty much get printed verbatim like None of the journalists that we have approached took the press release and then, you know, examined it and looked into it and did some mm-hmm. investigation and then, you know, wrote an article about it in their own words. They, we knew that if somebody was going to run with the story, they were going to take what we wrote and put it in the paper. Thank you for the free content. I can't yeah. stand journalists to do that. Yeah, but they all of, did it. Yeah, and it's become habit now. Oh, look, here's a press release. We're just going to put it out there as this is our story. Without- That's right. Oh. And they, the, but as from from the spin doctor's perspective, from our side of the equation, it was brilliant because we got to craft our own narrative. You got like, to write the news. We got to write the news because we knew that if the only question was whether it got picked up or not, it wasn't like would they rewrite it because they never did. I worked there for three years. I didn't have a, any a single one of my press releases that got printed. Not one of them was rewritten. Here's at a, the most they would do like an intro paragraph, kind of setting the stage for the press release. Right here's the double edged sword. I want access to you. Yeah. So if everything you give me, I rip apart and shit on. Yeah. I'm going to lose my access. Right. Yeah. We'll so it's, a, it's a fine balance you do. You don't shit on somebody too much. Mm-hmm. They're easier fluffer pieces that aren't going to cause any damage. You put them out there as needed to try and gain, because it's all about access and lack of access. Yeah. Once you lose access as a journalist, you're shut off. Your sources are done. No one trusts you. No one talks to you. You're worthless. So you've got to kind of take some of this propaganda from them. And throw it out there just so you can nail them on something when you really have to. Certainly, like, uh, from just the way that we interacted with the press, I mean, it was it was an ideal relationship as far as we were concerned. It is the most codependent, horrible relationship. 
ever. And that's probably why I'm good at it, because I'm really bad at relationships. <laughs> <laughs> Jet's Toy Hut. I like the selection of Star Wars toys you've got, but I've ordered from online sellers before, and it must have been packed by Ugnaughts because everything came shattered into tiny fragments. The Great Exalted Toy Hut wishes to inform you that your orders will be shipped out hand-packed. 
Handpacked by Ugnaughts? Oh, my. Toy Hut never just tosses a collectible into a shipping box. All orders are packed secure using packing peanuts, bubble wrap, air pillows, or packaging paper. Better even than being frozen in carbonite. What if I order something shaped like, say, a TIE fighter? Toy Hut has the best zero-movement packing and shipping online, and they have seven sizes of custom toilet boxes and never pack a collectible loose. Furthermore, the mighty Toy Hut wishes to warn you that no galaxy is too far, far away for their smugglers to get to. I heard I can get a free vinyl sticker if I order something over 25 Republic credits. What if I order something for 23? Can I still have the sticker? The magnanimous Toy Hut warns you not to push your luck. <laughs> ToyHut.com All too easy. Ironically, I don't have anything for in the news. Not in the news. So why don't we just jump straight into pop culture? Network, 1976. Faye Dunaway, William Holden, Peter Finch, Robert Duvall, Ned Beatty. A TV network cynically exploits a deranged ex-TV anchor's ravings and revelations about the media for their own profit. I'm uh, mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of like really choice quotes for that movie that everybody knows, whether they've seen the movie or not. Yeah, right? yeah for yeah. sure. Like, this movie is brilliant. And you know what the impressive part is? Like, Because I saw it once when I was really young, and then I saw it a couple years ago again, and it is almost more meaningful. The message, the underlying message of that plot is almost more meaningful today now that you know, this kind of journalism has run rampant. It's, it right? was like, a, it was a, an amazing prediction. Yeah. On it was the direction. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, and it's it's almost more poignant today than it was back then. And of course, uh, as we already mentioned, it, it was uh, inspired by the on-air suicide of uh, Chubbuck. Chubbuck. And the Mad as Hell speech was filmed in one and a half takes. Midway through the second take, Peter Finch abruptly stopped in exhaustion. Uh, the director was unaware of Finch's failing heart at the time, uh, but in any case did not ask for a third take. What's in the completed film is a second take for the first half of the speech and the second half from the first take. Peter Finch died before the Academy Awards were to take place, where he was nominated for Best Actor. He won, making him the first performer ever to receive a posthumous award at the Oscars. To date, as of 2008, uh, Network is, only, is one of only two films in history to win three Academy Awards for acting. Oh. The other one is A Streetcar Named Desire. Beatrice Strait who won for Best Supporting Actress, is only on screen for 5 minutes and 40 seconds, making hers the briefest performance ever to win an Oscar. <laughs> That's a hell of a performance. Yeah. It really was. Faye Dunaway is a pretty cynical uh, producer. Oh, yeah. and, yes. And it's, you know, she's kind of the future and the other guy and Beale's the past, right? Like it's, you know, this, this they're bridging this, this transitional period for, for journalism, for the news, the fifth estate. Yeah, it, it was, it was, it was protracting the really end of journalism as they knew it in the glory days of the 40s and 50s, right. where we were a respected profession. Yeah. If you were a journalist, people said, wow, I'm proud of you. Now, especially in television, you know, people don't necessarily think of us highly anymore. I mean, it really cleaned up at the Oscars in 1976, and this is one of those few instances where it probably was the actual best movie of the year, uh, and, it yeah. just, and it deserved all the accolades it got. It's, it's a, a fantastic film. It really is. And it's what's great about it is the parts of it, it feels 
almost unreal in the levels that it goes to. Like it, when I'm watching it, I'm like, this really, it's going to get this outrageous. But the whole time I kept asking that question, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, that's the point. Absolutely can get this outrageous. That's the point. Mm -hmm. And it's almost tame compared to what we have today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, except for Beale actually being shot to death yep. in the movie. Spoiler alert. Uh, but definitely, anybody out there listening who hasn't seen it, go watch it. It's It, yep. it, it stands up. Uh, I got to mention another classic film, that uh, it, Citizen Kane, one of the greatest movies of all time, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, kind of chronicles the life of William Randolph Hearst. Like, the, uh, you know, his life story was pretty, pretty much, you know, folded into that character. And it's one of the reasons, famously, Hearst was on a personal mission to make sure the movie never saw the light of day. Yeah. He did stuff like he went to the producer and uh, um, offered to pay him like more than he could ever expect to get at the box office for it. He refused to allow any ads for it to be carried in any of his newspapers or periodicals. He uh, campaigned against it. He, you know, used his influence in Hollywood to, you know, get uh, uh, get its li- its release limited, and it and it was Citizen Kane. Today, like sixty years later, seen as you know one of the greatest movies of all time, it was a box office flop. It was a total bomb. There's a great film called a recent film called Archeo two thirty one. I think it is two eighty seven. Two eighty seven, which chronicles Hearst's trying to destroy yeah. that movie. Yeah, uh, Lee Schreiber plays uh, plays Orson Welles. Orson Welles. It's a good movie. It's a very good movie. Yeah, it's not a bad movie at all. What's it called? RKO 281. Sorry. Uh, the interesting part about it is that, you know, Hearst was so bound and determined to make sure it never saw the light of day. Right? I recommend watching Citizen Kane and then watching that right after. Okay. RKO 281. Yes. That, that's a good tip. On the night the movie opened in San Francisco, Orson Welles found himself alone with William Randolph Hearst, which this scene is actually in RKO 281, uh, in an elevator at the city's Fairmont Hotel. Aware that his father and Hearst were friends, Welles extended an invitation to the magnet to attend the premiere. (laughs) Hearst disregarded the offer, and as Hearst was about to exit the elevator on his floor, Welles remarked, Charles Foster Kane would have accepted. (laughs) I love that story. I recently rewatched Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. That's and he, a Will Ferrell movie. It Go is a fuck Will yourself, San Diego. <laughs> Go <laughs> fuck yourself, San Diego. Uh, here's the thing. I remember not enjoying the movie that much the first time I watched it. I didn't really get it. It just felt like a bunch of goofy vignettes, vignettes. almost. Like, there's hardly a storyline to it. It's true. And actually, when you find out that they were able to take the deleted scenes uh, from that movie and create an another entirely separate movie out of them that yeah. you can get on one of the DVD releases, it's not very good. It, it truly is a bunch of little funny scenes all yeah. tied together with a very loose thread tying them Bare, like the thinnest of threads. But actually... When I watched Anchorman just recently, I thought it was an amazing commentary on male entitlement. It's funny. Because it's about all these male newscasters who are just so confident that the way the world works is the way it's always going to work and nothing's ever going to change that. And then this hyper-competent woman comes in and messes everything up. And then they kind of realize, well, it's kind of for the better, isn't it? Yeah. so despite the fact that it's this ridiculous farce, like yeah. absolutely ridiculous, there is a like a, a gang throwdown between different news teams yeah. fighting. I think I killed a guy like <laughs> outrageous. But 
within that, there's actually a really good little message going on. I remember this movie, it was like the first thing that I saw a bunch of these great comedic actors. Yeah. Like, I don't remember seeing Paul Rudd before this movie and falling in love with him in this movie. Yeah. I don't remember. Steve Marion. I I could do worse. I could marry you. Oh, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> uh, I remember not really ever seeing Steve Carell in anything before and just going, what is he doing in this movie? His choices are so random and hilarious, right? But if you watch, like even if anybody watches local news, mm-hmm. especially in a smaller market, and then they watch Anchorman, it's very similar. I mean, yeah. <laughs> local news can be very Anchorman-ish. In their pond, they are the big fish. Yeah, right? but in the yeah. reality, they're... Yeah. There's a great story. There's a TV station in Florida called Wesh, which is an NBC affiliate in Orlando. They had a guy in the 80s, weatherman, Danny Trainer. Okay. He comes on, I think, I think his name is Danny Trainer. He came on one night, drunk. He's, he's notoriously drunk on the air all the time. Oh, okay. awesome. Pissed his pants. Oh, on nice. the air, continue to do <laughs> his Weather start. is wet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's raining outside because my pants are damp. Everyone's watching. I remember calling people up going, did you just see what I just saw? <laughs> this is insane. And they didn't fire him afterwards. They just sat him behind a desk. What, where you can't see, see his beast states. Beast states. In the first draft of the screenplay for Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, it actually made suggestions for who they should cast in the different roles. Oh. Champ Kind. That would be Dave Keckner. Dave Keckner's character was originally supposed to be John C. Riley. Which okay. I could totally see. Yeah, yeah, they both would have been good. Dave Keckner was great in that. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Brick Tamland, who I believe was the Steve Carell That's Steve Carell, yeah. Uh, he was originally going to be Chris Parnell. Brian Fantana, which I think was Paul Rudd. Yes. Was originally supposed to be Ben Stiller. Ed Harkin, who was... Fred Willard. Was supposed to be Ed Harris. Fred, get my dick out in the theater, Willard. Garth <laughs> Holliday, who was played by... Chris Parnell. Uh, was Strangely po- enough. Originally supposed to be Dan Aykroyd and Frank Vichard. Uh, Luke Wilson. Luke Wilson's character was originally going to be Alec Baldwin. Oh, okay. Uh, a funny little trivia bit here from Anchorman. The Mexican restaurant that Veronica visits with the girls from the station is named Escupimos on su Alimento, which in Spanish translated means we spit in your food. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Really, being a weatherman in San Diego is the easiest job in the world. It's always 75 and sunny. <laughs> yeah, that's the comedy, right? Yeah. How about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? Oh. Yeah. Uh, does that even count as journalism? What, what happened he was there? a motivator. Hunter S. Thompson was one of my heroes growing up in high school. Oh, that yeah? That I went into this field for, yeah. Well, there you go. You could have also been like whacked out on drugs and getting shot at and stabbed and like losing two days and like only remembering it through uh, random recordings on your tape recorder machine. Who says I wasn't? (laughs) Well, never the recordings, but random drugs. (laughs) He just, you know, it wasn't original. It had been done. So that's why there was no book and movie. Uh, Homage. Is anybody around the table here who hasn't seen that movie and doesn't like it? Because I think it's pretty fantastic. Or read the book. I have not read the book. I didn't read the book after I watched the movie. I said, what's the point? Read the book. <laughs> All right. Uh, animator Ralph Bakshi tried to convince producer Layla Nabulsi to let him do Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas as an animated movie. Bakshi is quoted as saying, Hunter had given the rights to a girlfriend of his. I spent three days trying to talk her into letting me animate it. She wanted to make a live action. I kept telling her that a live action would look like a bad cartoon, but an animated <laughs> version would be a great one. I, I think I would like to see that movie. Yeah. They used to CG and stuff, didn't they, yeah. to pull that off? Yeah. And I think they really did well. But it, 
not knowing what CG was available at the time, I think he probably was right from his perspective. And it was Terry Gilliam. I mean, if anybody can yeah. pull it off, it's Terry Gilliam. Yeah, yeah. every Terry Gilliam movie is kind of like a hallucination, right? And over budget. Uh, it, it, this movie was in development for so long, the original cast members to play the lead roles were Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando. Ooh. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. No. No, but no. wow. For Jack Nicholson playing Hunter S. Thompson, I can see it. Marlon Brando playing uh, Laszlo, uh, playing as uh, his his Samoan attorney. <laughs> attorney. But what people <laughs> fail to realize is they they hook on this story of Hunter's. He actually was a good journalist. Uh, oh, his writing's amazing. I've read a, a bunch of his books. If you're really interested in politics, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1976, where he talks about the 76 presidential campaign mm-hmm. and the riots in Chicago and Miami. Fabulous read. A Generation of the Swine, which talks about the greed in the 80s, talks about what was basically foreshadowing what's going to happen now. The way he worked as a journalist was he kind of threw himself in the stories, but he put fact in there with weirdness. Well, this is, a, I, I got a definition for gonzo journalism that basically uh, talks about that, that like the whole definition of it is that you throw yourself into the, you don't, you, you become part of the story that you're reporting on, right? Uh, gonzo journalism is a style of journalism that is written without claims of objectivity, often including the reporter as part of the story via a first person narrative. The word gonzo is believed to be first used in 1970 to describe an article by Hunter S. Thompson. It was in Boston Globe's editor Bill Cardoso's article, The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved. He, uh, he claimed that gonzo was South Boston Irish slang describing the last man standing after an all-night drinking marathon. So what's the Muppet connection? <laughs> the gonzo character. Uh, he was Which the- came first? <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson. Oh, yeah, it yeah. must have been, because Muppets was like late 70s. Yeah, mid to late 70s. And this, this article was written in 1970 that described that. Uh, Another Hunter S. Thompson book, uh, The Rum Diaries, which was a fairly unsuccessful film. Mm-hmm. I still enjoyed it. Fairly unsuccessful? I think it was a disaster. A disaster. Uh, but it's a, great, it's a great semi-fictional story of journalism and how it's manipulated by corporations. Mm. Uh, it's, the book is a riot. Yeah, the movie. Meh. I liked it because I loved the story, but I recommend the the book. The, the book instead. All right, I'll check it out. There's a great movie in 1996. It's a uh, Oliver Stone film called Salvador with James Woods and Jim Belushi, which is really interesting. I think this was Jim Belushi's first role. Good gravy, Jim Belushi uh, yeah. in an actual serious in, a, in an part. actual serious role. He doesn't. He kind of plays a, a drunken sidekick, so he's not oh, too okay. serious. Right, right. He's the comedy relief. But it's an independent journalist played by Woods who goes to El Salvador during the 80s, and it loosely covers the assassination of the Archbishop Romero, but it shows how these journalists kind of floats and moves between people in the community, like he befriends bad people, he befriends good people. How you got to be a diplomat, basically, to be a good journalist. I'm going to give a spoiler alert, eventually he gets killed. Right, well, 1986, Uh, El Salvador. It's a fabulous, fabulous film. It's another film that I, when it came out, I was still in school, I loved. Uh, I'll have to check it out because I had never even heard of it before. Although I'm not a fan of Oliver Stone, uh, you know, even going back and rewatching Platoon, I don't think Platoon holds up. Oh, this wow. is pre-Platoon, and it's not as heavy-handed Stone. Okay, so I Maybe recommended a highlight before he became a complete. That was nat. really the complaint about Platoon. Yeah, it's so heavy-handed. Yeah, but it shows it really shows the tap dance that you have to do when you're in the field, where you've got to talk nice to like local officials or U.S. officials or anybody else you're trying to get news from. You've got to 
pat him on the back and say, yeah, you're my buddy. And really, no, you're my scumbag. And you give him a fake Rolex and everything. And then you move on. And it's a, it's a, it's a really good character piece on how journalists operate in the field. Well, going back to Hunter S. Thompson, he was definitely the inspiration for one of my favorite journalism-related comic books, Transmetropolitan. Yeah, I mean, this is a great, because it actually is all about his, this journalist. He's a, yeah, he's a gonzo journalist in a cyberpunk future. Uh, his name's Spider Jerusalem. Very iconically uh, has a shaved head. He's got a little spider tattoo uh, up on kind of the top right side of his head. And he wears these futuristic 3D glasses uh, and chain smokes constantly. However, he keeps a huge bag of anti-cancer medicine in his apartment. Right, because it's the future. It's the future. You're fine. Smoking is still disgusting, but uh, have some pills. You'll be okay. Well, he kind of does. He flouts every like social convention, even of the future, right? Right, right. Because he does everything just to... Get in people's faces. Exactly. Right? So is he a good journalist or a bad journalist? Uh, he's a complete and utter asshole, but he does things for the right reasons. Yeah. So uh, he's a good journalist. He's a good journalist. Created by Warren Ellis. Yep. I actually was introduced to Transmetropolitan by my brother Mike, our sound engineer and producer. And uh, he the, the, the reason was I was working on a pilot for a TV series called Global Frequency, mm-hmm. which was another comic done by Warren Ellis. And I was telling him, I was like, I was on set and I was like talking to the creator of the, of the show. He's go, Oh, what was his name? I was like, I was Warren something. And Mike lost his shit. (laughs) Right. He goes, Oh my God, you talked to Warren Ellis. That's unbelievable. He totally had a nerd boy fanboy moment. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I don't even know who the guy is. And then I, she showed up like two days later at my house with every issue of trans metropolitan that had ever been made. And up to that point. And, uh, yeah, I read them all and it's, it's a great series. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. It is so, smartly created so beautifully drawn so fresh and original yeah, like, and, and tongue-in-cheek yeah like, well i'll have to read it because i'm i'm not a huge comic book but this could get me into it well, it sounds is, like a story i'd enjoy so heavily influenced by hunter s thompson yeah. like everything about it it really is his uh, warren ellis going i want to tell some hunter s thompson stories in a dark cyberpunk future where again the, the presidential nominees are all just corporate puppets uh people are being crushed underfoot uh, under all this control there's no true journalism there's no say and along comes this uh this journalist who has been retired and living out in the cabin in the woods to get off the grid and finally comes back and he just starts fucking everything up because he is almost the good guy version of the xanatos gambit that he can handle almost everything he is so smart he is so with it he knows the ins and outs of all the horrible plays that everybody makes and he doesn't mind stooping to violence when he needs to that he is just this character perfect for his time and place to tell this story. And it is Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Because he played in some dirty places. Yep. Yeah. He, I mean, it's absolutely torn from the pages of Hunter you S. Thompson. You absolutely sure. need to read this. I, I think pretty much everybody can read it. It's it's yeah. a great, great comic book series. Doonesbury was also yeah. a spoof on Hunter S. Thompson as yeah. well. A yeah, the Duke. The Duke character Duke. Yeah. as Raul Duke, which was Hunter's alter ego. Well, there's a TV series called The Newsroom, which was actually mm-hmm. not the Newsroom one that's airing on HBO right now. Oh. Uh, there's a TV series called The Newsroom from 1996 that aired on the CBC in Canada. It's a comedy. It's not an overwrought drama. What's, who's like, the big name? Uh, the creator of the show was a guy named Ken Finkelman. And that's was, not a big name. Well, it was all just a bunch of Canadian comedians. Oh, so there's no big name. No big names, but it is hysterically funny people should actually search it out and watch it 
it's really funny. I think it's only like the first season is only like six or eight episodes or something like that. And there's the, there's a, a bunch of running jokes and it just, it, it pokes fun at the institutions of journalism because the, uh, um, the editor who, uh, or the producer of this, you know, weekly TV news show. Right. And, or so the producer of the daily news show, the news cycle, he's far more concerned about getting the right brand muffin than he is about like they're in, they're in a story meeting and his assistant comes in with, he asked for a brand muffin. She brings him a cran brand and they have this whole, but I didn't ask for cran brand. I asked for brand. And then they did this whole brand, brand, cran, brand, brand back and forth. And then the story meeting is going on without him. And he's like completely glazing over like what they're going to talk about that day on the news because he's like focused on whether or not he gets brand or cran brand. Right. Well, I've seen that happen. Yeah, and then then it becomes a running joke because he ends up with a banana cran brand, right? There's a banana brand and a banana cran brand, and he's like, "I just want plain brand." Uh, and it's so, it's very funny, and uh, no one's ever heard of it. I'm, just, it's like me and ten other people have seen it, but it's well worth it if you can find. But I talk about bad journalists in uh, television. You always got uh, you know Tom Tucker from The Family Guy. We now head over to Asian reporter Trisha Takanawa. <laughs> He always says the most inappropriate things, but yeah. that's kind of the, the family guy's shtick, right? Well, they yeah. do the usual thing that they speak, they're saying a Spanish town, like, los, they have to do it in a Spanish accent. They just can't do it in their, rest in their normal accent. Yeah, Ecuador. There was an earthquake in Ecuador. Is <laughs> Chile. And then, of course, Kent Brockman, your, your talk about the, uh, the bran muffin was yeah. reminding me of the Danish. Yeah. He's got the Danish on there, Bart steals it, yoink, yoink. <laughs> No Danish, no news. <laughs> the thing about Kim Brockman is he's actually not a bad reporter, right? He's just, I love the moment when they go like to his house. And he's always wearing the red Speedo and the gold chains, yeah. right? I just, uh, you know, uh, it may not be, he's not a bad reporter. Just, you know, the news might not be. Just a bad that. guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Wire, one of my all-time favorite series. Right. One of the great, uh, the entire season five is dedicated basically are in the newsroom. Yeah. It sort of like draws the parallels between the police and the press. That's where the series creator worked, right? He was yeah. a, he a journalist out, there. He started out as a reporter at the Baltimore. A, yeah, he was a crime reporter. Right. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that's how he got the idea for, for all these series that he created and whatnot. David Simon, I think his name was. And uh, um, yes, and there's there's a character in the newsroom who's fabricating stories and Boros, like from some of the stuff we've talked about earlier, like he starts talking about these these kids who are on drugs and blah blah blah. And it's all just made up stuff, and he sort of like gets brought down and and uh, just the push and the pull, like exactly what you, Stephen was talking about about the relationship between the press and the police. They both kind of need each other. The police need the press to like you know so they can find a killer. Uh, the press need the police to give them insider info, and so there's this uneasy alliance, and like they both kind of like the it. One of them is up on the other and down on the other at other times. And it's, I mean, season five, don't get me wrong, is the least good season of all the wires. Right. Uh, but it's still better than 99% of television. Yeah. It's like saying it's, it's like the worst fancy chocolate, chocolate cupcake. Like, <laughs> yeah, okay. It's not as good as all those other amazing ones, but it's still a good chocolate cupcake. Yeah. It's like, it's not gold plated. It's yeah. silver plated. Yep. Right. Well, of course, you have to talk about J. Jonah Jameson. Oh, we can't end any episode on uh, on the news without talking about J. Jonah Jameson. Of course, he was a publisher, less than a journalist, but <laughs> <Yeah>. certainly. 
Well, he influenced the news. Yeah. He, he said, this is what's got to be on the cover. I yeah. want pictures of Spider-Man doing crimes. Yeah, he certainly had an, his own agenda that he was pushing. And my favorite uh, is from the 1960s cartoon, captured by J. Jonah Jameson. Oh, uh, yeah? Where uh, an inventor comes in with this robot that's going to help J. Jonah Jameson capture Spider-Man. Ooh. And at first, J. Jonah is like, get out of here, you you crazy Kook. Kook. Yeah. But then he says, oh, but the added attraction is you can have your face in the robot's face while you're catching Spider-Man. And he goes, mm, <laughs> oh, oh, let's try it out. And then he gets all into it. <laughs> it was all about pride. So the rest of the episode is this kind of teddy bear-shaped robot <laughs> chasing Spider-Man around town. And J. Jonah Jameson just kind of haranguing him. You can't escape me, Spider-Man. So he totally becomes like the super villain of the episode. So why exactly does... Uh, well, I understand why J. Jonah Jameson wants to catch him because he wants to unmask him and like, you know, get the scoop No, he's a vigilante. Yeah, Let he's... the police do the crime solving. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. Okay, I get that part. But what powers, what powers did the robot have that it thought it could capture Oh, he could Spider-Man. do anything. He could climb up walls. He had this coating that the webbing would just Slide fall right off, off of. Yeah. Pretty good robot, I, which is why I wouldn't understand why this scientist would go, Oh, Jameson will give me a huge amount of money for this robot, but he can just go to the military. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. or, <laughs> well, this it's all purpose robot. The Jameson character is also spoofed in Hunter S. Thompson's The Rum Diaries as his editor in Puerto Rico. Oh, really? Looks at like if you were the kind of satire Jameson, who's a satire himself, but the satire, yeah, his editor there was kind of a satire of Jameson. Oh, if you read the book, you'll go. Oh, there, yeah, I can see it. Well, like um, uh, J.K. Simmons, who plays jo- J. Jonah Jameson in the Sam Raimi uh, trilogy of films, fantastic performance, did oh, such an unbelievable job yeah. of capturing J. Jonah Jameson in all of his glory, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Uh, it brought some real great comedy to the part. Because the he movie. played like a 30s, 40s kind of editor, and not yeah. a, it was not yeah. a modern editor. He played an anachronism. Yeah. It was great. And also acts as though he's not listening to anybody else. Yeah. Like you can see his character just kind of waiting for other people to be done talking and then say his lines, like he, which is exactly the way that character would perform. Hey, it's just like me. It's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling. You're dying inside, and when you wake up, startled to say, "I hope I don't go crazy today." It's such a bad feeling, an ominous feeling, a feeling you know that will. We'll be back when the week is new, and we'll have more gross facts for you, and you'll have things you want to hear about. We will too. Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while he was receiving maggot therapy. To comment on episodes, make a donation, see show notes, links, and videos, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook. Email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. Oh Jesus! <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh. <laughs>
<laughs> <laughs> oh, that is awesome. <laughs>